Hi, I'm Yusuf Zin. My latest TVO Today podcast is on how a Canadian ends up in a Chinese prison, and if he's even alive. Listen and subscribe to Extradition. Available now, wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to a TVO podcast. Hi, I'm Colin Ellis. Welcome to our show on Docs, a podcast about documentaries and the stories they tell. Today on the podcast, Anthropocene, the human epic. Look, I'm not someone who you'd say is all that knowledgeable about things like climate change, resource extraction, or animal extinction. But after watching Anthropocene at the Toronto International Film Festival this year, I've had my eyes opened. So many of the products we use involve digging it out of the ground, and that has a deep impact on the earth. Like marble, for example. Carrera quarries are a perfect example for us of, of a way that we can go somewhere that is so visually striking. And when you stand among the mountainsides that have been ripped off uh, to make marble sculptures in Michelangelo's time, and now probably our bathroom countertops, and we are responsible for this incredible change for literally thousands of years in, in Carrera. That's filmmaker Nicholas Depontier. He, along with photographer Edward Bertinsky and filmmaker Jennifer Beishwal, spoke with me about their latest film, Anthropocene, the Human Epic. That's epic spelled E-P-O-C-H. Some pronounce it epoch, others epic. I don't know. Tomato, tomato. It's the third film the trio have made together after manufactured landscapes and watermark, all dealing with the ways that humans interact with the planet. It's the kind of film that was made for the theater, so if you're lucky enough to catch it at TIFF this year, you'll know what I mean when I say this movie is, well, epic. No pun intended. It's not a film that will necessarily make you proud of the human race, but it's an urgent film, one that demands we look at the complexity of our role on this planet for better and worse. After I saw the movie, I immediately started looking at all the products I consume in a whole new light. Like when we were waiting for the filmmakers to arrive at their hotel room, we scrambled to get them some bottles of water. My producer Chantal Berganza raced downstairs to find a store in the hotel lobby and rushed back to the room. And then we realized that bottled water isn't exactly environmentally friendly, so we had to hide it from them before they arrived. And now my conversation with Jennifer Beishwal, Edward Bertinsky, and Nicholas Depontier. So thank you so much for joining us here, guys. Um, I guess my first question, I'd like to find out about the titles of people's films, and uh, yours is Anthropocene, the human epic. Uh, can you just explain to our listeners what the word Anthropocene means? So uh, Anthropocene is the proposed name of our current geological epoch. There's a group of scientists and geologists called the Anthropocene Working Group who have been gathering evidence for 10 years to determine if humans change the Earth systems more than all natural processes combined. And their research is showing that that is in fact the case. So we are in a time in the Earth's history where humans as a species, although we've only been around for 10,000 of 4.5 billion years, have tipped the planet outside its natural limits. Mm. And Ed, uh, I, I understand there's uh, not, not a consensus among scientists that this is a new uh, geological epic. Why is that? 
Well, um, it has to go to uh, a, a group of other scientists, uh, uh, stratigraphers who have assembled, and they and they're the ones that vote on 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 changing these boundaries or, or introducing new boundaries. It's still they don't feel the evidence is mounted enough, but the evidence is, is still being gathered to to make the case. And what would like formalizing it mean? What would that actually do for this movement? Well, formalize it would mean formalizing it would mean that uh, every Every geography textbook in the world would be redundant. They, uh, here's a new piece of information that now places humans uh, at, the, uh, at as the cause of this boundary change from one state, one epoch to another. So, so it does um, kind of ripple right through all universities, high schools, uh, and uh, it sends a strong signal to everybody that we as humans. Uh, are now the agency of this change. Anthropocene is massive in scope. The filmmakers visited 20 countries across six continents, and one of the places they visited were these marble quarries in Carrara, Italy, where you see construction crews digging up huge blocks of marble out of the ground. Uh, Nick, you, the film covers six continents, uh, 20 countries, and I was struck by some of the places you visited, like Carrara, Italy. Um, I just wonder if you're describing these marble quarries uh, to someone who hadn't seen them before, what, what would you say? Carrara quarries are a perfect example for us of, of a way that um, we can go somewhere that is so visually striking, and when you stand among the 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 mountainsides that have been quarried they 've literally been been you know ripped off uh, to make marble sculptures in michelangelo 's time to make uh, m- uh, marble foundations and architectural effects in Roman times and now probably our bathroom countertops and and you know the the floors in the insurance buildings um, we are responsible for this incredible change for na- literally thousands of years in in Carrera it's a devastating environment and yet it's beautiful it really is you stand there and it's it's almost like a cathedral because the the line and form of the way they chop out the blocks and the lines that it makes and the and the grain of the marble and the textures and the subtle colors and the way the light plays off those um, it's 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 there's a beauty to it that's a terrible beauty. I'll just add to that about Carrera. One of the main reasons that we 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 chose that place a, a because Ed has photographed there before, but also because what Franco tells us in the film, who is he's one of he owns a quarry. He said that what used to take an incision that used to take two weeks can now be done in a day. So the rapidity of our taking, the scale of our taking, has increased because of mechanization, because of the, the capacity of, of machines. And so everything is accelerated in Carrera now because of the way that the marble is taken. It, they used to, you know, carry it out with carts, right? I mean, it was so, uh, you know, horses and carts, uh, that's what that is. Now it's a, it's a completely different game. So that there's a, you know, that, that was a reason for that. Is there an, sort of ironic that you can create such beauty out of destruction in some respects well it's not I, I don't think so because I think we as like these are landscapes that are you know by design whether it's engineering design you know for you know you know the form is following the function here for sure and that and that 
like a, re- refi- a refinery or um, a plant that, that, that's cutting stone or you know, any of these places are, you know, all designed. And so right to the how do we get out into the landscape and carve out the stone, that's, again, working with geologists and engineers to make sure, you know, these things uh, are going to be safe to, to, to work um, work around that you're going to have you're not going to have walls caving in so everything is is has a human design element to it it's in a way visually trying to coax those elements out and find a way to 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 show uh how we as humans uh extract it's it's interesting when i did the early early quarry work they changed techniques the first technique that used to be called channeling and they would drill uh, just one drill bit after the, and holes in sequence in a line, and then they would get one piece of dynamite in the middle of it and blast it and be able to separate the granite. And then they learned how to burn it. So then they used, like using bunker oil and oxygen, they would then just burn, use a super high temperature and the granite would flake. And now you could see a whole different surface on that wall. One is channeled you know, half circles from from all the drill drill bits, and the other one is just this more melted surface. So even like reading that surface tells you of technological progress. So there's a lot of layers of information that I find are in those you know quarried surfaces about how we, as a species, have learned to extract this stuff. And that's what Jennifer was talking about: is that you know what would take two weeks to make one cut is being done in one day now. The film documents a lot of the ways we as humans have exploited the planet's resources, including in our own backyard here in Canada, where thousands of trees are cut down in British Columbia for human use. And, and there's a lot of amazing imagery in the film. I'm thinking of like uh, the shots of the forests in British Columbia. Uh, where, actually, where was that exactly in, B- in BC? It was on Vancouver Island. It was on Vancouver Island. <clears throat> where I grew up and, oh, and wow. uh, have a sort of particular affinity with that landscape um with that rainforest landscape and i i uh uh when you look on vancouver island now i mean there's uh what is it it's under five percent less well, than under five on the south and under, under uh, on 10. average under 10 around yeah 8%. On, under 10 percent of old growth forest is left on vancouver island and the whole of it, it, it it's just a no-brainer to us that there should be a moratorium on old growth logging period in canada uh, and especially in BC, which is doing more and more uh, raw log export. So it's not like, I mean, it's just a resource-based, as we said, a kind of Lorax mindset, <laughs> economy mindset, where you just take it all down and then it's gone. It was interesting to see the ways people celebrate the technological progress we've made, even as it comes at a great cost. I asked Nick what it was like to shoot in Russia's most polluted city, Norlisk, and how the residents there take part in something called Metallurgy Day. That was one of those places where you really felt you were having a rare experience and it took a lot of work to get permission and access and visas. I actually didn't believe that we would get permission to go to uh, 
to film in Russia at all, and then Norilsk especially is a closed city. Even Russians need a permit to go there. It's 320 kilometers north of the Arctic Circle, and it's a one-company town with 200,000 people population. Uh, it is a it is a really bizarre and interesting place, and somehow that just fit right in. The fact that in the middle of their summer, where the sun never set, it was actually really hard to film because there was always hard light, uh, even at three in the morning. Um, and it, and uh, you just know in the winter, no one's going outside. And yet they had this festival with the stage and the parade, and they brought all of the mining equipment out for the kids to play on. And that humanity is part of the feel, right? Yes, there's this epic scale to the to the industrial processes that are going on there, but then there are humans, and there's humanity, and and we can never forget that. And all those people are employed. I mean, they're making a living by doing that work. It's not. There's no black and white here. Like there's no it, it, there's no easy answer to this this dilemma we find ourselves in of of tipping the earth outside its natural limits. It's it's those are people who rely on that. Uh, th- that's why there is a, a, a metallurgy day because of the fact that. Um, it, there is the largest colored metal mine and heavy metal smelting complex in the world in Norilsk. It is the bigger, biggest producer of palladium. Palladium is used in all of our cell phones. We all partake of that mine, you know. Um, so we need to understand our own implication um, and get a deeper understanding of the connections of our implication and also recognize that these are complex issues that are not easily solved. You don't just shut down that smelter. That's, that's not going to solve the problem. In in my mind's imagination, before I went, I had this vision of this dreary, gray, Potemkin village, Stalinist period, uh, you know, and the people equally gray, you know, and... uh, and we got there, and, it, and you can see by the footage, it was brightly colored, and the people were happy. And it, it just wasn't the kind of image that I thought I was going to the end of the world, and people were dragging their feet to you know get to the company. And but it had a whole different feel to it, and that people were making the best of it in, in a remote area, but still life went on, and and you know kids were playing and parents seemed to be you know happily raising their kids there so you know the tenacity of humans and finding a way to make even you know difficult places uh livable uh that was a surprise to me yeah well another thing that uh the film shows us is the uh, that we're currently going through the sixth mass extinction which uh would seem to raise more alarm bells uh, than it seems to be doing. Um, I'm just wondering what it felt like to film some of these species. You captured some really beautiful images of uh, there's a, a northern white rhino which was functionally extinct. Uh, what did it? I guess I don't know, Nick. What did you think when you were shooting these animals that were kind of on the cusp of extinction? Shooting animals. Yeah, sorry, <laughs> poor choice of words. Oh, filming, <laughs> filming. <laughs> filming. Yes. Yeah, there you but, go. But it's just it's an, it's interesting. What a heavy concept, functionally extinct. And just to wrap your brain around it is one thing, but to actually stand there, and we spent several days with Sudan, who was the last male northern white rhino who subsequently has died. Um, And the northern white rhino is functionally extinct because now there are only two uh, left. They're both females. They're both geriatric. They won't reproduce. So they are alive, but when they go, that, that species is no more. And to be that close, to literally have touched... Uh, those rhinos uh, with my hand um, 
that is a a visceral experience of something that I will never forget, and it and it transforms you. Um, so. Uh, the species extinction is absolutely a marker of the of the Anthropocene, and and when the dinosaurs died off, the fossil record was massively changed, and the geologists use that as as a record. Is that's what is that what is happening right now? And it's humans that are causing it. A lot of the science says yes, and that's why that's a big part of our film. How about you, Jennifer? Felt to me like, you know, the the, the ethics of our filming are very important in the way that we engage with the context that we go to. We go all over the world and there's something presumptuous about thinking that you can just land in an environment and have something meaningful to say about it and not be of it. And and I'm we we were very I'm, I'm always thinking about our our ethical stance or the way that we are being in those environments, how we are um, uh, sort of showing the truth of those contexts, if we're able to show the truth of those contexts, and the humility with which we have to enter those contexts. And I would say with the animals, this idea that empathy, that compassion and empathy it d doesn't know the boundaries of species. Um, it's not something that just extends to other humans, but this feeling that there was a kind of trans species empathy uh, with the elephants, with the rhinos, with all of the species that we filmed, um, was absolutely overwhelming, and the the thought that we are are affecting other species so much by our rapaciousness, uh, the the evidence of that was quite overwhelming. Yeah, you feel the same way, Ed. Well, I mean, one of the things that really um, set me back a bit was. Uh, the tusk burn where they oh, assembled yeah. uh, over 100 tons of elephant tusks, uh, under 10,000 elephants. And, and the, the stat I heard that was shocking is that if you lined them up, you know, nose to tail, uh, the line would be 30 kilometers long. And it's not just... It's not just any elephants. They, when the poachers would go into a herd of elephants... They would look for the big bull elephant because he had the soup, they call them super tuskers. And the, we captured a pile of, of uh, the president's pile, President Kenyatta's pile, uh, which was one of the bigger piles of the 11 piles that were burned that day. And the day before, we were able to have two hours with that pile to capture it with um, a series of cameras that were able to capture it in 3D and photo, using photogrammetry. And the thing about the, the Kenyatta's pile is all of the the, the super tuskers tusks were leaned against it on the outside of it, and there were probably well over 20 of them, uh, which means 40 tusks. And they believe there's only 25 super tuskers left in all of Africa uh, at this point, um, because again, they're they're the most sought after and pursued by the poachers. So I felt that I was actually, you know, witnessing and in the presence. Uh, of a tragedy that 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 just you know r you know rips your heart out when you think of all of because elephants are very sentient beings they remember they have emotions they you know um, they bury their own apparently mm -hmm. yes they uh, mourn and uh, they mourn and, and uh, they sense loss they feel loss and to have humans kind of assaulting them on this level for tusks which we turn into chachkas you know I mean it's just insane. Every day, the smell of death. One of the tasks was written, Amboseli, elephant. 
I've had the privilege of working in Amboseli National Park for a long time. And I thought, this task represents an elephant I probably knew. This task will never hit the market. It will never make a trinket. It will never become a mantelpiece. I was not able to stop this elephant from dying, but I'm certainly able to stop it from being desecrated further. It's, it's, it's a totally unnecessary extinction event. And being there, it, it really, you know, it really made me question my humanity. It really made me question who we are as humans that we can't quite kind of get it right. And, and, and although there are a lot of people in Africa that are trying to stop it, but, but again, when there's a market for it, when there's people willing to pay big dollars for it, it causes these kind of bizarre, you know, forces, uh, you know, upon nature. And one of the statistics that that I found shocking in through the whole research of this is that somebody looked at what was a ratio of of mammalian uh, life uh, wild versus human humans and their and their domesticated animals versus wildlife and in the 1400s they estimated it was like 10 percent humans and all of their cattle etc as mammalian life and and then the rest 90 percent was wildlife today it's 96 percent humans and their mammals, four percent wildlife left. So when you look at the last, you know, four hundred plus years, you know, we've totally tipped. And that's a real kind of example of of the impact that humans are having on the planet when you start looking at just just basically mammalian biomass and how that's shifted over the last centuries. We have to wrap up our conversation, but maybe I'll just ask you, Jennifer, uh, this is the third film uh, that you guys have done together. Have you said all you need to say on this subject, or is there more to tell? You know, we didn't set out in the beginning to make a trilogy. This all happened quite organically, um, proceeding out of manufactured landscapes and the somewhat surprising effect and impact that that had around the world to do this meditative, non-didactic, experiential film about the Industrial Revolution in China. And so we've been trying to parse that approach, that experiential approach. Um, We live in a world that is full of distraction, and so to actually stop and have sustained reflection on a topic uh, uh, is is in itself a luxury and something that many people can't even bring themselves to do. Um, we're trying to do that here, and I feel like it is a culmination of everything that we have done together for the past 13 years, and the fact that we're exploring it not just in the film, but in the museum exhibition, in the book, in an educational program, it feels to me like this this is kind of the moment, um, and and I, I I would never say never in terms of what what the future will bring, but I feel like this is a, a kind of a summary, a conclusion. It's given me a lot to think about, and I want to thank you all uh, for joining me today. This was great. Thank, thank you very much. That's the podcast, everybody. Thanks to Jennifer Beshwal, Nicholas DePontier, and Edward Bertinsky for making time for us. If you don't catch Anthropocene, the human epic, while it's in theaters, look for it on TVO in 2019, or visit the exhibition that's happening at the Art Gallery of Ontario until January 6th. If you liked what you heard, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Got a friend who's interested in climate change? Tell them to download this episode. 
Better yet, tell your friend who doesn't believe in climate change to download this episode. Got a question? Write us at ondocs at tvo.org and follow me on Twitter at colinellis81. Thanks to producers Chantel Berganza and Matthew O'Mara, production support coordinator Caitlin Plummer, and our podcast manager Hannah Sung. And a big thanks to all the people behind the scenes at TVO who get this show to your earbuds. We'll catch you at the next screening.